First reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, reading from verses 19 to 25, and it's on page 1208 of the Church Bibles, if you want to follow it, or on the screen behind me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel reading comes from the uh, Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. You'll find it on page 1070 of the Bibles, and of course on the screen behind me. John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus could almost have sighed as he answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is this, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these beautiful and precious words. May they be food to our souls and a sustenance to our lives. Come Holy Spirit and open our ears and our hearts that we might hear your word and devour it, responding to you with fullness of heart and with all of our lives. Amen. When we, um, when we have the Alpha course, at the end of the Alpha course, we, we, um, we have a kind of feedback form. We get people to fill in the forms. And we ask a bunch of questions um, to try and find out how people have uh, responded to the, to the course and, and, and what their experience has been. One of the questions that we ask is this. Would you have described yourself as a Christian at the start of the course? Here are some of the answers that we've received. Yes, but without any real experience of a relationship with God. Sort of. Possibly yes, think so. Not sure. Probably-ish. Yes, though looking back, possibly no. No, a semi-Christian. When we're born again, we are born into God's family, and he wants his children to be sure that they are part of his family. Parents want their children to know that they belong. I wonder how you suppose I would feel if my children, Emily and James, were to use the same words in answering the question, are you a member of the Duff family? Yes, but without any real experience of a relationship with my father. Sort of. Possibly yes, think so. Not sure. Probably-ish. Yes, though looking back, possibly no. No, a semi-duff. I would be heartbroken. And that is how God feels when his children aren't sure of their place in his love and in his family. I want my children to know they belong, and so does my heavenly Father. The Apostle John that we heard from earlier says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have life, eternal life. The Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, uh, you know them well from the hymns at least, began life as Puritans. So I was talking about the Puritans before. They longed for assurance, but they knew in their hearts that they could never have assurance. At least 
if they, ha- if they could make their way to it, it would be after a lifetime of struggle and self, um, uh, of self-denial and of, um, and, and of uh, mortification and repentance and worship. The Wesleys did all of this. They traveled to America to share the gospel with those who had never heard of Christ. They formed a club to live holy and godly lives so that they could persuade God that they were worthy of salvation. But they could never achieve a settled confidence of their place with God. They never had assurance. And then one day, they received it as a gift. Finally, they understood they didn't have to work to achieve this certainty. All they needed to do was to receive it as a gift from God. They already knew that Christ had died for them and for the world, but now they understood that Christ had died not just for the whole world, but also for them personally. He had died for them too. Let me read to you the famous entry from John Wesley's diary, his journal, that speaks of that moment. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. You understand, he's already been to church in the morning and then in the afternoon he's gone to St. Paul's Cathedral. So you can imagine this, felt it was time for a rest. He went unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one of the leading, sorry, one, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was still describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. And I began to pray with all my might. Christ died for my sins, even mine. Commenting many years later on this passage from his diary, from his journal, Wesley uh, noted this, that previously he had had a faith and a relationship with God as a servant, striving to be good enough to win favor. But from this moment, he had the faith of a son, receiving that favor as a gift. In words from our first reading, we can draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The basis of this faith is threefold. It's like, um, like a tripod. There's a tripod. Why do we use a tripod? Because it is the most secure, stable structure that we can create. It doesn't matter what kind of ground it's put on, how lumpy or bumpy, you can put it on anything and it will still stand firm because the three feet can always find a plane of stability, whatever the, whatever the surface that it's standing on. 
So what are the three legs of the tripod of our assurance? The first one is the promise of God, the word of the Father. We have heard a really wonderful promise already tonight. Let me read it to you. This is from the lips of Jesus. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. That is a promise, and because it's God's promise, it will never fail. First leg of our tripod. So what's the second leg? The second leg is the sacrifice of Christ, the work of the Son, on which everything is based. So Christ died for me. Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might become the righteousness of God. That work of Christ has nothing to do with my activity. It's got nothing to do with my capacity or my capability or my, or my worthiness or my righteousness. It's all to do with Jesus and his love and his righteousness. So that too, like the promise of the Father, is objective. It's not to do with me. But the third leg is more subjective. The third leg is, is what makes the other two objective facts of my salvation feel real to me. And that is the witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. Deep inside me, the Spirit uh, declares what Christ has done and what the Father has promised so that I can know for myself the deep experience within me of conversion gives me confidence that I really have crossed over uh, the river, the boundary, the, the border between darkness and light. Even if it took a long while and many, many little steps or whether it was a sudden flash in the pan moment, the witness of the Spirit inside me tells me that this really has happened. The cross is always effective, but now I know it's effective for me. And because I haven't made any of this happen, I've only received it, it never becomes a possession of mine. So I always treasure it, always value it, I always recognize the wonder, the beauty, realizing again that despite all my fail failings, my flaws, my limitations, somebody loves, loves me enough to die for me, to rescue me, to save me, to bring me into God's presence. I am loved, and that is a wonder. And because we know it, because we taste the wonder of it, because we treasure the beauty of it, it changes our whole approach to Christian life and faith and discipleship. Instead of angst and heartache and uh, a sapping of our energy, clouding us with, with gloom, now what we do has a lightness about it of gladness and of gratitude. Charles Wesley wrote on the first anniversary of his receiving of this assurance of faith these amazing words. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great 
Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. If I could have managed it, we'd have had a non-stop Wesley fest tonight, so we've sung all of the Wesley hymns that I can remember. One of the original 18 verses that Wesley wrote, which unfortunately didn't make it through uh, the many uh, editorial cuts that have happened to his hymn, hymn since then, one of the, those verses gives a sense of the personal wonder of this experience. It goes like this. I felt my Lord's atoning blood close to my soul applied. Close to my soul applied. Me, me he loved, the Son of God. For me, for me he died. For me, for me he died. For me, for me he died. Well, it's true that this uh, promise, this work, this uh, witness of God for this gift of salvation to us doesn't belong only to us in a church like this. It belongs to all Christians everywhere. So we, we could never for a moment say that this was, this was our possession, something that belongs to us, our exclusive right. But on the other hand, it plays such a powerful role in our understanding of faith here in a church like St. Jude's that it naturally changes lots of other things about the way that we express and live out our faith. It changes us in a few distinctive ways, and here are a few of them. Firstly, it gives us a great trust in God's promises. Because we've heard and believed this promise, when we see other promises of the Father and of Jesus, we grab onto them with both hands. We've discovered the truth of Scripture. Internally, we've got that. So that means we believe it when St. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 1.4. God has given us very great and precious promises. God has given us very great and precious promises. Which is a verse, incidentally, that John Wesley read the morning in which in the evening he went to Aldersgate and claimed one of those great and precious promises for himself. We find that God's promises are more to be relied on than people around us. And certainly more than the contradictory impulses of our situations in life and of um, our feelings. Which is one reason why we are so committed to the practice of reading Scripture every day, to see which promises Jesus is going to bring to our attention today which we can grasp hold of and claim and enjoy. So trust in God's promises. Secondly, it gives us a real boldness in prayer. Because we can be sure of the person to whom we are addressing our prayers and their attitude towards us, we don't think that maybe one day they're going to be angry with us and the next day they're going to be indifferent, but we know that they, are, they love us, that, that they, sorry, hold off for heresy, we know that God loves us and, 
uh, and welcomes us and embraces us and draws us into his family. So, we know that what Jesus himself has said is that if we ask, it will be given to us, and if we seek, we will find. So we are ready to ask boldly for things that we think would bless us and other people. It means we can pray for a parking space because we know our Heavenly Father loves us and cares for us. And if He provides one, we thank Him. And if He doesn't provide Him, we bless Him nonetheless. Equally, we can ask for things that seem completely impossible. Healing and world peace and life eternal. Because we know that nothing is impossible for God, our Heavenly Father. And that He loves us and the world even more than we do. Sometimes it's true this approach gets us into trouble if we forget that the Father's perspective is much longer and broader than ours is. But we remind ourselves that this approach to prayer goes right back to Moses, who, standing on a hilltop, fought in a war of intercession for his people. So it gives us this assurance, gives us trust in God's promises, it gives us boldness in prayer, it gives us energy for action. As they say, pray as if it's up to God, act as if it's up to you. Release from inner doubt and uh, anxiety and so forth gives us the freedom for outward action and activity. We're full of energy to be up and doing. We're always asking the question, Lord, what next? So uh, the PCC are going away on a, um, uh, away up there probably, on a um, vision day uh, in about three weeks' time. Really pray for them as they do that. Um, and they're going to be asking, what are the goals that God has for us? We have a sense of you know, what our calling is as a church, but what are the big, the big, hairy, scary, audacious goals that God has for us? And I wouldn't be surprised if they came up with some really big things that we looked at and we thought, that's ridiculous. We could never do that. But we believe in the God who loves us, the God who loves South Sea, the God who loves Portsmouth, the God who has chosen us to change the world. God has chosen to use his church to change the world in impossible ways. And so we're going to ask him, what are the impossible ways that you want us to change this bit of the world, Lord Jesus, for you? So in particular, this sense of assurance, they're all G'd up at the back there. In particular, this assurance generates in us a commitment to evangelism, Indeed, to worldwide mission, evangelicals have been at the forefront of mission to the whole world. Not alone, but there. Because they believe that we all need to hear this amazing news. We believe that this news is not just for us here gathered on this evening, closed and shut against the world. We believe, and that's why we called ourselves a church without walls and made ourselves an an entranceway that anybody can see into. We believe this is good news for everybody. And we are called to share it.
gives us too a thirst for justice and active compassion for those in need. We were celebrating this morning uh, the ministry of um, Jeanette amongst us, and she was mentioning that in, she was involved probably 20, 25 years ago in a drop-in club in, in Silver Street for single parents, um, uh, blessing them with a place to be and uh, Sunday lunch and some parenting uh, uh, support and uh, some life skills. That's just part of the heritage of St. Jude's that I've been reading up on recently, which stretches right back to the beginning when there was no National Health Service and there was no um, DHSS. And it was much of it for Southsea was done here. There were clubs for everything, for shoes, for people without shoes, for blankets, for coal, for um, educating children, for just uh, rescuing people off the street, all sorts of stuff. This is our heritage because we believe that God has called us and so he has called us to share our, our calling with the world. And the knowledge that we are loved and we are accepted and we are welcome to God energizes us and gives us the passion and the power to go out and share that. Ironically, it also tempts us to begin to rely more in our relationship with Jesus on what we do for him than what he's done for us. It's a very, it's a very subtle temptation. It starts, you know, in kind of hidden, unseen ways, but after a while we begin to be more conscious of what we're doing than of what God is doing, more conscious of of, you know, the blessing for God of our being on his side than the blessing for us of his being on us. And that's particularly ironic, given that the whole energy to work for God had come originally from discovering that it is God who loves us and not we who love God, which counts. Nonetheless, as the writer of Hebrews said to us this evening, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur on your PCC in the next month, and may they spur one another on to outdo one another in dreaming what God might be choosing to do through us in this next season. So, it gives us trust in God's promises, boldness in prayer, it gives us energy for action, and an experience of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has given us freedom from this crippling sense of unworthiness, of loneliness, and insignificance. And all that has been replaced by an assurance that we are loved, accepted, that we have belonging and significance. That inner assurance of the Spirit, added to the testimony of Scripture and the objective reality of the Gospel, is tremendously powerful. And it gave to the first evangelicals a tremendous thirst for unconsciousness of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, there is uh, what they call a second-generation syndrome, where, you, where the second generation starts to take for granted the things that were so extraordinary and amazing and unprecedented for their parents. It's why second-generation immigrant families, the, the next generation, because they no longer have to struggle for the sense of belonging, because they have been born here, wherever here is, they, they find it much easier to begin to grumble about all the kind of irritations and annoyances of here, wherever here is. And they no longer have that sense of gratitude and privilege for being here, 
wherever here is. Well, the same can happen in spiritual life as well. It can happen in families. Uh, one member of the family um, meets with God, and then children discover that they don't, just as a process of osmosis, have that same sense of expectation of, of meeting, of discovery, of relationship. It's said that God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And the children of his children have to discover him for themselves and become his children. What can also happen is that we can lose sense of the, the vital importance, the realities, the truths that were so important to our parents' generation and their parents' generation. And certainly in the first 50 years of the last century, these great experiences and truths of the Holy Spirit disappeared and dissipated. Um, if you were to do a search of the songs of, um, of uh, what was it called? Uh, as before my time, of, uh, I think it's, they're called CMMC uh, chorus books. Um, they came before um, Youth Praise, and they were, the, they were the set of chorus books that the young people of the first half of the last century, of the 20th century, grew up singing of this kind of a church. And almost no reference in those songs to the Holy Spirit. It had become something dangerous, something uh, that was kind of distant, something that was no longer espoused as part of the heritage. And the result was that that generation grew up with a dry faith. And we, we can read of the experience of that in this church, and some will remember what that was like growing up before uh, Don Churchman and his vital faith and his, uh, and his puppet Jerry came and uh, burst onto the scene at St. Jude's. Before that, we had this same kind of faith, but it was a dry and formal faith. The congregations were shrinking, and there was no sense of life and spark. And then what happened... Uh, uh, first, the, the, the charismatic revival, and then uh, new wine and alpha burst across the scene um, in this country, in the Anglican Church. And so many people, so many thousands of people across the country, thirsty for the Spirit of Jesus, had their thirst quenched. How exciting, as they rediscovered and re reclaimed Wesley's heritage. As it said, without the Spirit you dry up, without the Word you blow up. But if you've got the Word and the Spirit, you grow up. So this sense of assurance has given us trust in God's promises, boldness in prayer, energy for action, experience of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, of those I want to mention, confidence in the future. Being sure of salvation now enables us to be rather more relaxed following Jesus into an unknown future, not knowing what's next for us here on earth, and also into eternal future. We have a greater confidence in our hope in life beyond the grave. As Paul says, and many assured Christians have echoed, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He goes on to say, 
I would rather die and be with Christ, for that is better by far, but it's better for you if I stay, stay here in order that I can help and bless you. So I'm sure that that is what God is going to do because he wants your blessing. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're grateful for this life and all the opportunities that it gives us to enjoy fellowship together and with Christ and to work for him and with him and to serve him. And we're released from the fear of death of what lies beyond. Because we know, because I know that I am my beloved and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. I sang that as a youngster and those words echo in my heart They're from the Song of Solomon, from, from the Bible. I am my beloved and he is mine. And his banner over me is love. Is that not incredible? And does not it give us confidence for all that he has planned? Somebody once asked me a very telling question, or asked a telling question. How, how safe would you feel locked in a train carriage alone with someone you don't trust? How safe would you feel locked alone in a train carriage with someone you do trust? I am my beloved, and he is mine. And if I'm locked in a church on my own, I would rather it would be with Jesus. And if I am locked into eternity, I know that it will be with him. And his banner over me is love. At the age of 74, Charles Wesley reflected that he was unafraid of anything, and all he looked for was to finish his course with joy. And then he quoted a verse he had written 37 years before. Oh no, band aren't going to play it. Happy if with my final breath I might but gasp his name, preach him and cry to all in death, behold, behold the Lamb, behold Behold the Lamb. There was a man I knew who lived his life on the principles of that verse. Happy with, if with my final breath I might but gasp his name, preach him and cry to all in death. Behold, behold the Lamb. His name is Tony Berry. His funeral was this week and he was one of the first people to greet me when I came to St. Jude's 15 years ago. A month before he died, at a great age, he was to be found in his hospital bed testifying to the nurses who were caring for him about the meaning of the cross that he wore around his neck. By the time he died, he was urging the Lord Jesus to let him leave this world and be with him as soon as might be, that he might set out for the Father's home as soon as possible. There are some words from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress which perfectly sum up Tony's departing. After this, it was noised abroad that Mr. Valiant for Truth was taken with a summons. I shall say it now 
There is a musical setting to this which I sang a very long time ago. I would love to have it played or sung at my funeral if any of you are involved in that. Okay. So listen to the words. After this, it was noised abroad that. Are you taking notes? After this, it was noised abroad that Mr. Valiant for Truth was taken with a summons. And when he understood it, he called for his friends and he told them of it. And then he said, I am going to my father's. And though with great difficulty I have got hither, yet now I do not repent me of all the trouble I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who will now be my rewarder. When the day that he must go hence was come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which, as he went, he said this, Death, where is thy sting? And as he went down deeper, he said, Grave, where is now thy victory? And so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. In conclusion then, it isn't arrogance, as some have accused us of, to be sure that we have forgiveness and eternal life, that we are secure in the presence of God. It would be arrogance if that were de depending on us, if it was our skill or our um, righteousness or our humility that had won for us those things. But we didn't achieve it. We don't deserve it. We have received it. And because we've received it, a free gift from our Heavenly Father, we know that. We know that the tripod on which our assurance is based is secure. It's the promise of God, the word of the Father. It's the work of the Son, the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's the witness of the Spirit deep in our hearts that tells us that we are loved and accepted, not for anything that we have done, but for everything that God has done for us. And what the Father has given to us, he will give to all who call on his name as Jesus said in tonight's reading, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. It isn't arrogant to be sure. It's our privilege as children of the Heavenly Father. Our Father wants us to be, and so we can be, confident of our forgiveness for all that stands between us and God. Sure of our relationship with him as our loving Heavenly Father and Jesus our Lord and assured of eternal life in his presence in fullness of joy. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine.
going to pray now. If this has touched any of you and you sense that you don't have that assurance and you would like to pray with somebody so that you can have it and receive it, there will be prayer ministry at the back. We would love to pray with you. Let's pray now. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Heavenly Father, You have done so much for us, and we love You for all that You have done. We know that we can't deserve any of it, we can't win any of it for ourselves. And yet You give it to us in Your love for us. And we are so grateful. Lord, would you impress upon us again the richness, the reality, the glory, the generosity, the power, the wonder of this certainty that we have in you, of your love for us, and of our salvation in the blood of Jesus. Oh God, let us know deep in our hearts by the ministry of your Spirit that we are saved and reconciled and called to work with you, to be in communion with you, to live forever in blessing with you. May our lives proclaim the honor of your name. power of the Spirit and through the merits of Christ our Saviour to the glory of God the Father.